We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand-addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. Isabel. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. A podcast about now, for the second time ever, liches. <laughs> about insta-love. About biting the neck that loves you. About getting the gang together to go on an adventure you didn't think you wanted to go on. About making love to a dragon, but never actually a dragon. That disappointment is evergreen. About changing your worldview in an instant. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. (laughs) This week, we are very excited to talk about... That Time I Got Drunk and Saved a Demon. By Kimberly Lemming. And this is Mead Mishaps Book One. So, Isabeau, this was your pick. Yeah, this was on a list. Um, uh, I was taking stock of our the things that we wanted to do in 2023, as I often think about, you know, like how we hold yeah. ourselves accountable, how we move forward. And one of the things that we said that we wanted to do was find more... Dragon fucking. Dragon fucking, more weird stuff, uh, but also more authors of color. And Oh, right. <laughs> And this just checked like a bunch of boxes. It was on a bunch of lists. And I discovered it when we were doing our fan fictuary because I had read a little blurb that said, even though the demon looks like Kylo Ren, this is not a Kylo Ray fan fiction made into a novel. And I was like, great. I'll file this away for later. Uh, And then I sent it to you and was like, do you want to read this? And you're like, yeah, I love mead mishaps. It's great. And I was like, yeah. Not a a whole lot of mead happens. Almost none, unfortunately. It does get a couple brief shout outs. But this one's for the Renaissance Fair girlies. Yeah, it is. If you like Renaissance Fairs like I do and go annually, you'll probably like this book. It's a vibe. This is for those... It's like that. It's like one of those. It's like a it's like a hosier song. If you were into the briefly lived and cruelly murdered ABC television show Gallivant, this might be for you. Oh wow, yeah. 
That's a good point. It is like a little too hetero for our man, Hosier. Yeah. I I know his name is, wait, is it Hosier? Hosier? Hoosier? Hoosier. Hosier. (laughs) Gallivant was available on the flight I recently took, and I almost, I was like, it is a six-hour flight. I could get through all of Gallivant if I wanted. I only watched the first episode ever. The first episode isn't that good. And hot take, I think there's a lot that's happening in the second season when they knew that they were going to get canceled. They really swung for the fences. There were two seasons of Gallivant? Mm -hmm. And this is for my friend that I know doesn't listen to the show, but I need to say this for her. It's like, I really believe in you, Tad Cooper. And for the one listener who's into Gallivant, I hope you remember that and feel tickled. I'm cutting it out. It's never going to see the light of day. That's fair, honestly. I'm telling you right now, you wasted your breath. Cool. Let's get going. (laughs) So, okay. So those were the kind of vibes you were looking for. Author of color, fantasy weird, self-published. This is likewise like our last book from the glimmering edge that is Kindle Unlimited. Glimmering. Yeah, I think it's like, what is that? You know, like when you see <laughs> when you see something like sharp in the distance and the sun just catches it and you're like, what is that? You know, like the event horizon of a black hole. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the glimmering edge of romance. Mm. Kindle Unlimited. TM. Well, we'll we'll make some merch and we'll see how many people agree. <laughs> we need to make merch. We need to make merch. <laughs> uh, we'll get to it. I promise. Don't worry about it. Um, all right. Do you want me to read the back of the book? A hundred percent. These people are dying to know what this book is about. That time I got drunk and saved a demon. All I wanted to do was live my life in peace, maybe get a cat, expand my spice farm, really anything that doesn't involve going on a quest where an orc might rip my face off. But they say the goddess has favorites. If so, I'm clearly not one of them. After saving the demon Fallon in a wine-drunk stupor, all he wanted to do was kill an evil witch enslaving his people. I mean, I get it, don't get me wrong, but he's dragging me along for the ride and I'm kind of peeved about it. On the bright side, (laughs) he keeps burning off his shirt. That is... That's it? That's the back of the book. (laughs) Uh, What's interesting there is I don't remember him burning off his own shirt once. It happened a lot in the interim between the first chalice and the second chalice. Because he'd like light his hands on fire and then his shirt sleeves would burn and it and then it would stop and then he'd just essentially be wearing a, a muscle tank. Uh-huh. And then Vogue she'd be like said those are big for the summer. Oh, well, this book was like prescient in that way then. Yeah, Vogue put out a whole uh, photo editorial about sleeveless shirts for when the weather gets warm. Way to remain on the cutting edge, Vogue. (laughs) You are the glimmering edge of nothing, Vogue. (laughs) Get with it, Vogue. Lots lots left unsaid, I think, by that back of the book. Yeah, I agree. So uh, let's start with our uh, female main character, our heroine, whose name is Cinnamon. She is also a cinnamon spice farmer. She is part of a family of farmers. They live together in a village called Boo Hale. Uh, her best friend is a che- cheesemonger named Bree. Uh, 
This book is punny, but is in on the puns. So it's yeah. kind of like laugh or don't is very much the vibe of the puns. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, laugh or don't is the very much the vibes of the whole book, I think. Yeah, Boot totally. Hill, I want to know, seems to be not a New Orleans, but a kind of certainly the bayou yes. of Louisiana, mm-hmm. uh, one for one. There's even alligators that they prepare fried. Mm-hmm. And each of her siblings has their own farm as a part of this large farm. So we've got the wholesome version of nepotism. Absolutely the most wholesome version of it. So we've got Chili, we've got Cumin, her brothers, uh-huh. <laughs> and then her parents. I love that her name is Cinnamon. Yeah, Cinnamon's really good. It's very charming. I love the idea of this world, mm-hmm. this small kind of backwater where people name their children after their profession and the children just kind of inherit the profession. I, I really like that we had a, a not-so-ambitious female main character i love that too a real frodo baggins yeah she really loved her town she really loved her spice farm she really loves her family and she does not want to be picked by the goddess to go on the adventure that happens every 15 years does everything that she can to not take notice by the goddess she dyes her beautiful dark hair pink to make herself less attractive because it's Rumored that the goddess picks pretty people. That's why she dyes her hair pink. God, I just miss so much. (laughs) You just must have like just flew through this. It's weird because I feel like a very true and like assured sense of place and person. But these details (laughs) did not (laughs) resonate with me. Maybe helps that I just slammed this book uh, over the last two nights. I read it. I I took a leisurely week-long stroll, sure. Yes, so she starts off, she's getting a little tipsy because it's a big festival time. This goddess that they worship selects heroes to defend a gate that becomes permeable. And beyond the gate are these snowy mountains and many demons. Boo Hale is quite far south, so they don't get a lot of demons, but they do send a couple heroes. And the heroes that are selected are often who you would expect from the community, the popular and well-liked. Indeed, Cinnamon once dated one of the heroes and Mm -hmm. is quite affectionate towards the lady who was chosen, who gets her own fancy pink sword. She decides to celebrate and starts walking home drunk. You can see where this is going from the title. Out of the clear blue sky, he drops into the field where she's walking, tries to kill her, and she carries Cinnamon with her. uh, So she whacks him over the head. And we discover in the whacking that um, Cinnamon breaks the witch's curse. Which we didn't even know existed. Which we didn't know existed. We thought demons were tornadoes of destruction. They were Tasmanian devils like the cartoon character. And then once he's whacked with cinnamon, he's actually quite polite. He's like, let me tell you the score. She's not a goddess. She's a lich. Mm -hmm. And she put a spell on all demons so that they would do her bidding and then captured us on the other side of this gate. And I'm going to destroy her phylactery. Mm-hmm. 
I need your help. And once I destroy her phylactery, demons will stop with this like miserable existence. We'll take back control of our minds. And you're just the person to help me because you are a cinnamon farmer. You have so much cinnamon. So much cinnamon. And you are cinnamon. And she's like, that all sounds like a demon lie. I don't believe you. Let's go test your theory at the first chalice, which just happens to be in my town. We, uh, we, yada, yada, let's go. T- There's some other stuff that happens, but yeah. Yada, yada, let's go test this theory. And so she's like, because he's like, what have you got to lose? If I'm lying, you can kill me. And um, she's like, all right. And so they test it, and it turns out that, like, it's true. She breaks the chalice, and out pops a terrifying, like, gobbledygook sort of like skeleton that tries to kill her obviously Fallon really helps her um and then thus thus begins the adventure because there are of course four four phylactery jokes on you you gotta go on this road trip with me to destroy the rest of the phylacteries and along the way they fall in love wouldn't you know it they get into all sorts of shenanigans exploring these other towns and communities they liberate it turns out that like in major cities demons are kept as pets air quotes so they've got collars and they've got like really intense spells put on them some of these demons are scary scary people speaking of scary what if this book is not an Adam Driver fan fiction because it's a Jimmy Fallon fan fiction. Why would you say Jimmy Fallon? Because of the name Fallon. And he's t- tall and he's got dark hair and he does uh, little one-liners. He does do... Cinnamon does one-liners too. It's a book of one-liners. He doesn't strike me as the Fallon type. He definitely strikes me as Adam Driver fanfic. And see, like, I don't see i don't see adam driver anywhere and i'm supposed to be seeing him everywhere it's the dark eyes and the dark hair and the what that just means that just means adam driver now i guess i mean i think it's the height and like the big hands i'm holding you personally accountable for this cultural shift for adam driver me yeah for adam driver you're the one who points him out all the time listen to me i live a life (laughs) imagining characters in my head The fact that you didn't see him in the Dead Romantics and then I pointed out that it was exactly the way that John Oliver was describing Adam Driver, that's not a me problem. No, it is. That's a cultural problem. You're seeing it everywhere. Because it is everywhere. Water is wet. Why don't I see it everywhere? I think you maybe don't want to. So you do want to? No, I just like can't stop. You know what I mean? Where it's just like once you're aware of a thing, you can't stop noticing it. You know, can't wait till this episode comes out and you got to hear yourself say that out loud. And you're going to be like, oh my God, I am Adam (laughs) Driver's driver. It is I. I don't think so. (laughs) Pretty sure I'm not. I mean, he's obviously in Dead Romantics. That was, that's true. Like he, but this book intentionally says no, right? It intentionally said that it wasn't a Kylo and Ray fic, which I will agree is not, it is not. Pointed statement. Very pointed. 
Oof. It also, I think, really resists even as it plays into. So there's like a, I, I found an interesting tension because I think it's easy for farm girl to fall into a Persephone. And I think it's easy for a dragon demon with horns who's super tall and brooding with long, dark hair to fall into a Hades type of trope. And I found that this this book really resisted and also gave in in places, which I found to be an interesting tension. If there's two references that I'm seeing over and over and over again in the last like three years, it's Adam Driver, but only when you point it out to me, but it is there all the time. (laughs) And then Hades and Persephone. Yeah. Everywhere all the time. Hades and Persephone is really like the thing right now and has been for the last, yeah, I think three years for sure. Isn't like one piece of media romanticizing Hades and Persephone enough? Like the the myth exists because it teaches, it like says something really important and true that I think we still need to carry close with us. And this idea that Hades is actually like a romantic hero and Demeter is actually a villain is very destructive to that narrative and i think we have enough other narratives about assholes actually being good guys that but we don't have enough about like moms loving their daughters yeah moms (laughs) the complicated relationship between mothers and daughters and like how it can survive trauma a really important change like you know, the shift into adulthood. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I find the Hades being a romantic hero doesn't really do much for me, but the Demeter and Persephone does a lot. And Demeter was the, used to be the main character of that story. And now it's her hot daughter and (laughs) her evil boyfriend. Every mother's worst nightmare. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Yeah. So what was refreshing to me about this is that the cover kind of evokes that vibe and like their various jobs sort of evoke. So bucolic. Exactly, right? Like it is kind of like the field where Persephone is literally abducted. But it's like it resists that, right? Like he's like, you can kill me if it, if I'm lying, right? Like you, you, you can do these. Like there's so much here about Phelan trying to meet sin or cinnamon where she's at which I found really lovely and in the same way that um accidentally in love did (laughs) cute stuff um with that Cthulhu light uh god there was a lot of cute stuff about Phelan he's like well that's a human thing explain it to me human where he's like she's like this is a crayfish boil (laughs) And he calls them water spiders or water something Water spiders. Yeah. A I also love you pronouncing it Phelan. I wonder if I would have enjoyed the book, spoiler alert, even more if I had read the name as Phelan and not Fallon and had like this, <laughs> the inkling that it could be Jimmy Fallon fan fiction. Can you imagine? It literally didn't occur to me until you made that pronunciation choice. And I was like, okay. A little bald otter. <laughs> That would be his shifter persona. So true, though. <laughs> so, yeah. So the book is is a series of adventures. So they go to this big city. She makes a new friend who runs an inn and has a hyena sidekick. 
And, oh, and she has sidekicks, Smash and Crash, her horses, who become Pegasuses, Pegasi, Pegasus. I loved Smash and Crash, and their evolution into Pegasi uh, I thought was really great. I tell people I I was a horse girl, and indeed I I grew up with horses, but in fact I am a Pegasus girl. That was my dream. I never wanted to fly. I wanted to have a horse that flew. Mm. Wouldn't that be incredible? It's an interesting distinction. I loved Hercules made a big big impression on me. That's such a good one. That's a good Pegasus too. Oh, so cute when he's a baby. Yeah. Also, it's like full of personality. I love that they like headbutt each other when they're like excited. Just some goofy two himbos. Two himbos, and like that's that's Hercules. The Disney animated Hercules is the vibe of this text. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah. Bunch of himbos. They're rescuing himbos. They're like aligning with himbos. They're just like everybody like comes to the party and like says sorry and means it, and then like people just move on. No, yeah. No miscommunication. Nothing like that. People are dealing with their traumas also in a very frank way, but it doesn't feel cloying. No. Which I want to come back to. But first, I also want to note, since we're talking about like fan fictions, at like the halfway point in the chalice hunt, they become swashbucklers. They burn down a whole city because they were enslaving demons and they free the demons because they broke the chalice. So the curse is lifted on this town. And everybody gangs up to, like, support Cinnamon and Phelan on their quest. And so they steal a ship. And her friend is, like, very good at running a ship for some reason. I trust it. Her father was a sailor. That's right. Her father was a sailor, so she knows what an aft is and a bow. There is a point at which they decide as a crew that they're going to do some piracy. And they're like, wow, this ship was really easy to steal. It was a trap. Yeah. And they are attacked by the storm dragon. Mm -hmm. And it is at this point that we discover Phelan, a.k.a. the shadow dragon, is actually a brand new dragon, truly a himbo. Mm -hmm. He just seemed impressive because she had no reference point for dragons and this like real deal dragon shows up shows up and it's a guy with like olive skin and long silver hair it is blackbeard from our flag beads death it's taika waititi <laughs> welcome to the podcast <laughs> podcast talking taika it's been so long that's so true that's a that's a good spot that's a really good spot it talks about his like matted hair and everything because mm-hmm. he had a chalice head and it's like this whole thing. We don't want to go too much into right like details because I only remember four of them. <laughs> but <laughs> that's who I thought. I was like, oh my god! I've been reading a lot of our flag means death fan fiction lately because nice. of our foray. They're just like little lovely little treats for me. Delicious. But that's what I thought of. So I I <laughs> I think that's right. Like I I. I didn't realize until you said it that I was also picturing, like, a Taika Waititi-esque. And so, like, that, like, that's correct. And, like, what's better for your, like, himbo than Blackbeard, a la Our Flag Means Death, being his, like, mentor? Like, you help him save Taika Waititi from Our Flag, I mean, Blackbeard from Our Flag Means Death, and then... 
He's, like, helping you guys out. He, like, leaves you alone to pork on the tropical island. It's nice. And then he literally drags the ship to the last gate, like, flying his little wings out as hard as he can. They don't have wings. That's true. They're, like, Chinese dragons. Which is so cool. So cool. So cool. Super hot and super phallic. I was like, I'm really glad that that's here. Thank you. Look at these. <laughs> Look at these flying dildos breathing fire. Look at these wiggly wieners <laughs> going through the air, surrounded by fog. I was into it. I was like, there aren't enough Chinese dragons in my life. That's clear to me now. It's a hat on a hat. You know, you don't have to have big flapping wings. Mm-mm. You do on a horse. You don't on a dragon. That's mm-hmm. the woe man's stance. The woe stance. Yeah. Fight us. Okay. Good. I'm glad I'm glad we've come to an agreement. That's the end of the episode. Wings belong on horses, not on dragons. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh yeah, it was really cool. Um, I thought the magic in general was really cool. I also found the fight scenes to be super rich and dynamic, which is not something that happens frequently. Fight scenes happen frequently in the romance we read, but having like really dynamic, interesting character supporting, right? Because like Cinnamon's internality remains really like witty and oh, brother. Yeah. (laughs) Very Charlie Brown about the whole thing, which is charming. It's really fun to be in Cinnamon's perspective. It is. Even though it's first person, I was never bored or antsy about being in her perspective because it is quite funny. I found the fight scenes, I'm glad you used the word dynamic because when I was reading it, I found them very cinematic. Um, And even from the limited perspective of Cinnamon, which means that like she has to be like moving around in the fight scenes a lot, which I think adds to the dynamism you're talking about. Yeah. I think it knew when to back off of specificity, too. Yeah. It knew when to be like, everyone was in a big cloud and there were swords and legs sticking out of it. Not literally, but essentially. (laughs) Yeah, or like even with something like the... So one of the demons that they meet in the town that they liberate is this demon called the Lamia, which is <laughs> half man, half snake. And, and like, like a, not, it's, I would say a quarter man, three quarter snake, because it's a big old long snake body and like a white snake. Right. And it's like, here I go again on my own. Eight feet long. Um, and there are a couple of points where like the Lamia is killing people and it's like, it's gross enough. And then like, then she's like, turning my head, Usha is doing X, Y, or Z, and turning my head, and Phelan's raining fire down from the sky. I'm like, so there was like enough that we, I felt like in her perspective, but we never stayed with like a gruesome scene too long. And the most gruesome scenes that stuck out to me, at least, were when Cinnamon was in particular danger. So like, the when the chalices break open they're like constantly bubbling like bloody sludge and like these weird bone creatures come to like get her there's a scene in the bayou where after she's made the crab boil and she sees and hears her dead sister and she's like, it's my sister, it's my sister. And Phelan is like, that's not your sister. And then the creature that 
is trying to lure her into the river and drown her and eat her is revealed as this like weird furry river creature with a thousand teeth and it's oh just like oh my god it's a wet it's a dog with a clawing hand at the end of its tail like these these fantastical horrifying creatures and like also they have giant skeletons and i don't think there are enough spooky skeletons and stuff anymore it is so effective it's deeply effective like when the lich is finally revealed and she's just like a desiccating skeleton i was like ooh i was impressed by the writing that made me take a giant skeleton seriously yeah because there's so much like people make a lot of jokes People make a lot of yokes about skeletons, and they shouldn't. They can be really scary. They are terrifying. Yeah, she overcame all of that cultural baggage for me and made them scary. And I was like, well done. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that water creature thing. Oh, with the hand at the end of the tail. Terrifying. Oh, so gross. But I, I think this is like... A violent book. It's very violent. Lots of people die. An entire town is burned to ash a la Khaleesi showing up at King's Landing. But like it's not, there's also like a lot of violence on like a really intimate level. And I don't know if I can, can I talk about my weirdest part? Please. My weirdest part is that I think this book is as specific and gratuitous in its violence as the last book we read, The Dark Mafia Romance, Twisted Pride by Cora Riley. But for some reason, it wasn't as affecting to me. And saying like, oh yeah, it's because you just got done reading that book is not enough of an explanation. I'm not satisfied by that explanation. I want to jog your memory. Okay. So this scene happens early in the book. Mm -hmm. So before Cinnamon saved Phelan, she saved him from a neighbor guy who was pretending to be a highwayman right and she was like i know who you are you're not gonna mug me like get out of here and she thought that phelan was in danger so she saved him from this guy and it involved popping this dude in the nose and so the next day as phelan and cinnamon are about to set out on their journey they are confronted by this family of tall redheads Mm -hmm. who aren't general hucks but Uh-oh, <laughs> poking holes in your it's not a fan theory. Not my theory. Like, <laughs> it was re- I read it on the internet. I don't I was talking. Uh, I was talking to the general yore. Okay, okay. The royal yore. The yore okay. that stands behind you and is actually a wet dog with a scary hand at the end of its tail. The plural you. And Phelan decides that Cinnamon is under threat, so he's got to defend her in the only way a demon knows how. In a flash, the oldest Huckabee was off me. I landed with a thud on my butt and looked up to see Tyler kneeling on the ground. Fallon was behind him with a foot on his back as he held one of the man's arms. Then, with a sickening pop, Fallon twisted the captured arm back toward him. Tyler screamed in agony with another yank as fresh blood spurted from a white bone popping out of his forearm. Bree screamed as she fell back and hurried away from the horror show in front of her. Harper gasped and stepped toward his brother. With a cruel smirk, the demon unsheathed his sword and glanced up at the younger boy. Get in my way and you'll be next. That was pretty intense. Super intense. And I think one of the things that that scene, and there are a couple of other scenes of like what I would call vicious 
eruptions of violence that then are subs- that then quickly subside and are um, ameliorated pretty quickly. Well, there's and- these. The, the weird part for me is that these scenes, not just that they exist, but that they're bookended by silly stuff. Like I landed with a thud on my butt. Mm-hmm. There's a scene I think where she describes the smell of blood because there's so much blood. Yeah, it's like raining down on her. And then there's at one point when she sees him again and he's covered in ash of all the people that he's burned. Yeah, the details are incredibly violent. Was it as affecting for you, though, as the violence in the last book we read? No. Part of it is because I, I'm i a nerd to fantasy violence. Like, when an orc gets shanked, I don't read it or feel it the same way, even when, like, a bad guy, like, a, a would-be rapist is knifed in the way that the last book had in the third chapter. I don't, it can be the exact same scene and you put someone in orc costume and it does not hit me the same way at all. Like, Why is that? I think there's like a, a people part of it, right? And like a human face is always going to be harder. Like that's a harder obstacle for me to get over, even if I understand and know them as a villain. Even if it's like a bipedal mostly human looking creature like an orc yeah like i am not sad when any of the orcs in the lord of the rings films get it and they they get got uh pretty violently a lot of the time and i like i i don't say this like as i'm like i'm not proud of this thing but i think one of the ways in which fantasy violence gets away with a pg-13 rating Hmm. when it shouldn't right like helm's deep is an hour of gratuitous violence that just like keeps hitting. And that film got a PG-13 rating, whereas something like Road to Perdition or Saving Private Ryan correctly rated as R. But like if we're talking about number of casualties, violence, blood and guts, they're more similar than they're different. What's kind of slip, but but the scene I just described is a human being is like a young teenage boy having his arm ripped mm-hmm. out of socket and then broken. Mm-hmm. It's not happening to an orc, and it's a what we are supposed to understand as a already as like a handsome humanoid, like superhuman looking mm-hmm. <laughs> demon. Eric, it's like a human with horns, you know, right. Adam Driver with horns. Yeah, who's perpetrating the violence. Why does this hit differently for me than the last book? I, I Like, it also hits differently for me. And I'm wondering why. Like, I, I mean, the thing about orcs and stuff is I would say, like, violence against those creatures affects me as much as, like, the violence against this human boy in this mm-hmm. fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. But it is to say, like, the fact that it's something about it happening in a fantasy novel is somehow different from what's happening in a dark mafia romance and people will say like well one of those is supposed to be realistic and I'm like is it is (laughs) it they're both like fantasy and the fact that like I can edit it in my head like it's just what's I'm picking up from the page right Mm -hmm. and I'm picking up essentially this almost word for word a teenage boy getting his arm dislocated and his bone broken out of his skin happens in both books the amount I should actually care about this boy is slightly different, right? Sure. But I would say on, like, a human level, not really. Mm-hmm. What is it about, like, adjacency to fantasy? And I don't think it's, like, 
it we it cannot be that like they don't look quite human enough to me, right? Like I get that with like ants that look like trees. Yeah. You're talking about a very specific scene about a bad teen who like he's trying to defend his younger brother who we know as an audience has lied who tried to mug cinnamon and now here's the older bigger brother bully who has picked a moment when he thinks cinnamon is alone because he knows that if cinnamon had her brothers with her this would be a different conversation so like he's coded deep as like Kiefer Sutherland bully from Stand By Me like he is not a good person and he so like there's that part of it And then you're right. He is being violently attacked by a near human creature. And I think part of the difference here then, too, is that like Cinnamon says stop and Phelan stops. Right. Like he doesn't murder the bad teen in front of us. And she's like, you can't just kill people. And he's like, well, he would have hurt you. And like, we all know that to be true. Like the the stakes of the Huckabee violence felt real to me. But the fact that Cinnamon has the ability, control, consent to be like, don't do this. There was no one in the mafia story who was saying don't do the violence until the very end when Serafina was like, he's a child. I'm not doing like a specific one to one comparison because I think like on the page, they are similar enough that they are a way for me to understand a thing about myself, which Mm -hmm. is that... Violence, as gory and depraved as it can be in fantasy literature or in fantasy film, as you pointed out with the depiction of Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings, is that why doesn't that hit as hard? Like why? And I think in general, that's true for me. I think it's true for you. Mm -hmm. Like in general, why is that? Even when it's happening to a human, Mm -hmm. even when it's happening to... Like, we know that his brother attempted to mug her because they're very poor. The book tells us that. Yeah. Like, they come by it honest, right? This isn't some, like, it isn't quite Kiefer Sutherland who's just a... Sociopath? It's not quite that. Okay. I felt like the older brother was a bit of a sociopath. Uh, But, like, maybe that's the book doing its work on me. But I I think even if, if this exact scene had been dropped into something like a dark mafia romance we would both feel a lot more confronted by the violence than we do in its current state. I think that's absolutely true. The, like what I'm trying to pick at is like fantasy and ge- fantasy violence in general. Why? Given the beautiful charmed life I've lived, super intense violence like that is pretty much entirely fantasy to me. A human doing that to another human is something I've only seen in movies, right? Mm -hmm. Saying that it's like, it's imaginary doesn't really feel like like it's getting at the why. Maybe it's as simple as, right, that titillation conversation we had, but it's a Renaissance fair for real is like providing me enough of a screen that I can just lean into titillation and like root for the good guy and boo the bad guy. I think there's that part of it, but I also think like the trappings of this part of the subgenre are really important. Where it's like I think you're right to say that violence functions as fantasy in dark mafia romance in in similar ways, but when everyone is carrying swords and daggers and 
bows and arrows and like there's an expectation that like you could also just be rolled by an apple cart and die like there's like I think a technology thing that also forces the separation in fantasy because it's like medieval adjacent or like renaissance adjacent whereas like mafia feels like now which is also part of that confrontation that you talked about like you feel confronted by that violence because not only is it something that you see in movies, it's also, like, closer to what you see on the news. Like, you don't see some mm. guy with a sword just, like, wailing on bad guys on, like, NBC 14 at 6 o'clock, you know? And I think, like, that creates a setting distance in our brains that, like, the dark fantasy of mafia begins to collapse because it's like guns and switchblades as opposed to like crossbows. Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Which feels way more violent than Franco Zeffirelli's, which is crazy because it's the exact same thing. And they call their guns sword, long swords. <laughs> I mean, they it's do. very, it's very good. If you haven't it's seen, this is really funny watching uh, youngsters on TikTok discover Romeo plus Julia you know I'm glad they're enjoying it and the movie for me does hold up I'm all I've always been a maximalist I've always loved Baz Luhrmann it's been fun to watch a younger generation Christopher Columbus something you were raised with you know yeah it's weird but I'm glad they get to enjoy it because it is like a bonkers good version of that play I'm so relieved that it's held up because I was worried mm-hmm. I was going to see it and be like, I rewatched it recently. And I was worried I was going to be like way too irked. And I wasn't. It was still fucking great. Before the pandemic, I watched it with um, a bunch of students in one of my classes. Blew their minds. And I was also blown away. You're responsible for this. Mm-hmm. In part. Have you heard about this little indie flick? <laughs> Romeo plus Juliet directed by Baz Luhrmann. It was really, really big with... People who are your parents. Oh, yeah. Holy smokes. It's been that long. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's what I think about fantasy violence, getting back to it, where it's like it feels... It is. It's like a screen. Yeah. Like there's an approachability aspect of it that's just different enough. That you don't... I, I think that when you said like it's different enough from the news that it feels less confrontational... I do think there is something weird for me about my willingness as a human being to like throughout my life not think critically about (laughs) to just be like, oh, yeah, same thing. I think maybe that like nerve was just tender enough after what we read last time that I was like, oh, why is I actually had that in my notes. I'm like, why am I not upset an entire town was razzed when I was so fucked up about one bad guy getting knifed? The logic of the novel is like everyone is culpable for what happened to these demons. But we see like the main character, Usha, Usha, she learns, realizes that what she knew was wrong and then sets to make it right. No one else in the city was given that opportunity. It's not like the demons were stopping and being like, so I can actually talk and reason. I'm a how person. Do you, how do you feel about that? It you was know? bad what you did to me. Please yeah, make we, amends. The opportunity was not given. They were just burned to the ground, which feels very like punk rock and rock and roll. And I understand the urge, but it is, yeah, like 
why don't I care? <laughs> why am I like, hell yeah. Yeah. What was your weirdest part? So it's that Usha thing um, in the town. There's this line. And I think like this text was already skirting a couple of lines for me where um, the puns came fast and furious at the beginning. And I was like, I don't think these are as funny as the author wants me to think they are like or like I can't tell if the author wants me to think they're funny or like goofy or cornball like I'm not exactly sure where on the spectrum I'm supposed to land with some of this Mm. and the text is like kind of ambiguous about whether or not I'm supposed to find it charming or saccharine yeah and so on page 73 Usha has this moment um where they're like, hey, Usha, not that I'm complaining, but why are you agreeing to help us? I asked. Concern, concern crept into the back of my mind. She really had no reason to jump on board so quickly. She didn't even know us. Then Keeper's smile faded. Her gaze dropped to the floor. I've unknowingly walked past fully sentient people being treated as less than animals and did nothing. If it were me at the end of a chain, I couldn't imagine the kind of monster that would walk past me and do nothing if they knew the truth. And then... In Cinnamon's mind, her answer left me speechless for a moment, but she was right. Her logic was simple and just, made changing one's entire worldview seem like a mundane occurrence. Maybe it should be. As much as I'd rather stay out of a conflict and live out my life in peace, I don't think I could walk away from someone suffering in front of me. That line, her her logic was simple and just made changing one's entire worldview seem like a mundane occurrence. Maybe it should be. Like, that feels like the author speaking directly to an audience about us now and things that are happening. And then through the lens of Usha, who's the only person given the opportunity to change her worldview in the town, although we have Cinnamon and we have, like, other characters who are, like, changing their worldview. Um, That was one of those moments where it's like, this book is entirely earnest. Maybe it should be really turned the earnestness goofball meter for me. In a way for me to read this book then as like this author is working on something and like wants it to be as joyful and like full as this could be. And is like this is this is less this is less a silly project and more a project of like heart or depth or something like it it began to feel less frivolous in that moment to me or it's like I felt like the author had revealed themselves what's your weirdest part there that Usha's the only one who can see like they kill the whole town right like there's this like cognitive dissonance in this and then there are like these tonal shifts that make it really hard right like the first part feels like a romp and then we get this line maybe it should be and then, like, we get this, like, internal dialogue later about, like, I don't believe in HEAs, but I really need one right now. And I'm, like, I don't know. Like, it felt like this is what it felt like to me at some points. Like, I was riding in a car with someone learning stick shift. And I was, like, clutch. I mean, gas. I mean, brake. I mean, like, there are three pedals. 
And like, I wasn't not here for that experience. I just didn't know that that was the experience that I was signing up for. See, I, I appreciated the fact that this book could have these moments of like sincerity and clarity and directness. And also I feel like it is silly and I feel like it's not, and I feel like it is like har har at times, you know, like it is commenting on Saturn. But I, I love the fact that I feel like this author is very successfully encompassing both is like moving between those tones and like our discourse doesn't have to be a grave conversation no i agree it doesn't have to be a special episode of glee like it doesn't have to be suffragette scandal no to like be meaningful no especially amongst white women i find that like these conversations about oppression and (laughs) oppression Right. Conversations around systemic oppression are like these very um, special episodes. Mm-hmm. I mean, like if your existence is oppression, it consci- being conscientious of like what you're doing that oppresses people and how you can fight oppression. If that is your existence, if you're truly living that way, then you have to live that way with joy as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, and of course you would. It's inevitable. I think human joy is inevitable. And so I really liked that this book had both of those tones and not only was like silly and had levity as well as having these like sincere moments. And I also like that the moment is so like pithy. Yeah, maybe it's direct. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it doesn't like then go into like, she remembered once when yeah. she was a girl and she wrote a poem and then Phelan was like, me too, here's my <laughs> poem and here's my allegory. And then we knew that Phelan was a good person because he too had a speech. Like, it, I think it flowed nicely into the story. It was an important way to progress where we're going on these adventures. And I think continuing on probably in the series, we need to like have a moment of like intense liberation and conscious raise consciousness Consciousness raising raising. the and i think while this book can do both of those things it can also i think it can also be like slightly acerbic and like commenting on how saturn romances are yeah commenting on how obvious like fantasy nerd culture can be what do you mean by obvious? If you read fantasy novels, they will 100% have a cheesemonger, maybe not named Brie, but named like <laughs> Haldawal. Like, you can only think of so many things as a human being on Earth, right? And everything is a reference to something else. And I feel like science fiction and fantasy writers are pretty on the nose. They are. 70% of the time. At least. And I think in fantasy there's an, a special openness to that mm-hmm. but people go like oh how clever you know <laughs> yeah because i think they like get siloed in like weird fandom spaces and then like they you know people don't peek out and realize that like the world is more venn diagrams than circles i feel like this book is conscious conscious of like the redditor yes <laughs> lingua franca and is like willing to be like look at these like ugh. <laughs> gross no fun right so i like that it can be like self-effacing in that way mm-hmm. it can be self-effacing it can be silly and it can also be very sincere and it's like when we read ee e. ottoman's book 
The super cozy one. The craft of love. The craft of love. It's like you can have something that has a very specific point of view and that is making a statement and an allegory that's going to be pretty much one-to-one for any reader. Like you can do that without having like all the scaffolding required to clean the windows of the Empire State Building. Like you can just say it. You don't have to couch it and him and ha, you know, as much as authors often want to. What was your sexiest part? Well, okay. So here was another, I don't know, raw nerve moment, but I was thinking about what my sexiest part was. And I was like, well, it's either when they kiss at Mm -hmm. the bayou or it's their first sex scene after they burn the city to the ground. And I realized how often... It's the first one. It's the first one. Mm-hmm. Well, because it's an emotional catharsis as well as like a physical one, right? Like it's right. like it's what you it's what all the longing has been building up to. I legitimately thought while I was reading this, I was like, I would write my first sex the first sex scene I wrote. I would not allow to be the first sex scene of my book mm. because I would feel like I needed to like transfer some of that catharsis energy, like keep those good vibes going. And like mechanically, all of the sex scenes are hot and gratifying. But I think you're right. Like there's a moment of emotional catharsis. I think even as someone in the year, a reader in 2023 who's been doing a romance podcast for a while, I still get worried that the sex scenes are going to suck <laughs> and or like not exist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when they do, I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Right. This is great. You know, mm-hmm. it gets that it's like teacher hot. Yeah, Like, the yep. first sex scene is always going to get, like, five more points. And yep. so I'm actually, like, at a loss. Like, I feel like talking about sex scenes as sexy is, because of that, coming from me is just boring. Like, I'm always going to choose the first one. I used to think it was, like, lame to not choose a sex scene. And now I'm like, there's got to be something else. Like, if it's the first sex scene, I'm being a dullard. I'm glad that you've come around to the idea that the sexiest part isn't necessarily a sex scene. And that like I mean it has to be sex adjacent. It can't be when he hailed a cab politely. Like don't I'm not giving you an inch and you are not taking a mile. Okay. <laughs> I don't you need a mile. I don't need a mile. I don't need a mile. I don't need a mile. But I wonder, like, if other, like, do you have that experience where you always think the best sex scene is the first one? I think it's more often than not because it's the emotional as well as the physical catharsis. And I think you hit the nail on the head where you're like, oh, man, are you going to be good at this? So there's like there's the relationship of the characters. There's where we are in the story. But then there's the relationship that we have with the author and like whether or not we fully trust them or whether or not they're going to break our hearts. And I think the the hinge point of the sex scene is actually quite a good one to test that. And I like I hadn't thought about it in those terms before, but I think that's bang on. Um. And I'm trying to think of sex scenes for me that have been later ones. And oftentimes, and like this isn't going to, you know, it's not going to make you happy. It's like second chance romance. Usually mm-hmm. I love those. I'm going to tell you when you choose the not first sex scene, it's when someone's pregnant. That is often true. I do like that. Um, I'm thinking specifically of... Bringing Down the Duke by Evie Dunsmore. It's like the third sex scene in that one is better for me than the first two. Because there's just like 
Because what happens in that one and why it makes it special or different or like a different kind of hit is that she's decided that she's not going to stay with him. So she's having sex with him for the last time, but he doesn't know it. And so like that adds this weird ass tenor in terms of the internality and like the sex act itself, which like gives it like crazy vibes. Um, and I think like you have to do something like that. This book attempted that, right? Where it's like um, he faded mates her and then you're like, you think you're going to get this like big epic sex scene. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, by the way, I got to go upstairs and fight a dragon. And she's like, get your dick in me. <laughs> <laughs> that was I found that to be very dreamy. I did like that part. I was about to say I will choose if, if it's between a first sex scene and a bathtub scene. I will always choose a bathtub scene. First sex scene is a bathtub scene. I didn't stand a chance. You didn't. And it's care. It's like tender ministrations. Like he picks her up and takes her to the fancy bathhouse. Ugh, just want, just fuss over each other. Come on. Yeah, for like a whole day. Yeah, 100%. That's the best way to do it. Oh, and it's this is also like, I didn't understand praise kink. I was like, yeah, of course people like it when people say nice things about them. Hard, hardly a kink. Hardly. And it's very messed up societally that we're calling it a kink to want to say nice things. But it's very, it it is this like talking to you like you are a horse that I think is the actual praise kink thing. Yeah, it's your coat so shiny. You're so good at all the things that you do. (laughs) You eat this sugar cube out of the flat of my palm. Good girl. Good girl. It's a lot of that. And this novel helped me clarify that distinction and i will still say like you know just like if it's a first sex scene versus a bathtub scene i'm going with a bathtub scene if it's degradation versus praise i'm going with the praise probably i was surprised by how not offended i was by the light uh strangulation i was like "Hmm." i was definitely in Cinnamon's camp when she's like, I did not realize I was into this thing. And I was like, I too am not realizing until this moment that potentially the thing that I have been aghast by in all of these other novels is definitely done in this way. Because I don't hate it. This book also did a great job of like, not making it about like choking. Yeah. <laughs> like it didn't feel like a trust fall. Or it yeah. did feel like a trust fall in the right ways. And it didn't feel like a surrender. That's right. It. It felt like a trust fall less than like a... Submission. That was very definitely done. Yeah, I I found... Like, this book is is very much on, like, the uptick. Very silver linings. Very optimistic overall. And that carries through in the sex scenes. If you like that kind of worldview, you should probably read the whole dang series. Yep. What was your sexiest part? I mean, we just covered, like, eight or ten. Yeah, honestly, like... When that dragon wiener just wavy gravied through the sky. <laughs> I was strangely into the sky dildo. Sex kite. <laughs> Sex kite. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to go with, like, the thing that gave me the most tingles was when she's like, I love you. And he's like, do you mean it? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, great, I'm going to bite you. And like, our souls are going to collide and you're going to want to bone me and I'm going to want to dick you for three weeks. Dick you? And then, oh, God. <laughs> and then he just like, he's like, by the way, dragons are petty. I'm going to leave you like this and go fight this other dragon. You've got then- a lot of nerve having beef with choking sex scenes. <laughs> you're going to say dick you out loud. 
I liked it. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. That like intensity. Mm-hmm. And it was also like a surprise, like a genuine surprise that he left in that in the heat of that moment after their souls collided, which sounded both painful and interesting. Um, this book like took its world building just serious enough for a book about a cinnamon farmer named Cinnamon. That is so true. It hits just the right accord. And it's, yeah. ex- it's self-aware. Yes. Which makes it, like, endlessly forgivable. I think, like, a lot of the books that we have, like, beef with when they do stuff like this, they do not seem self-aware. Yeah. Like, Love, Laugh, Lich, self-aware. Gorgeous. If someone's going to put a lich in a novel, I think I will trust them. I mean, two for two on liches, which seems bonkers, frankly. I will say, if I could quickly absolve us of all of the criticism that I gave earlier as far as sex scene preferences. I think your ideal sex scene is something that has soul-sized stuff, like big stakes, like intensity. And my ideal sex scene is one that has like minutia, <laughs> like very particular details that are not soul-sized. I do like soul-sized feelings. Like, one of the things I was really struck by as sexy in this novel is it didn't say he smelled like male. It said, a masculine scent of black currant and violet. Mm. Black currant really captures, like, the right amount of funk. Agreed. There's just a little bit of sourness there, but a lot of sweetness. And then yeah. violet, that kind of, like, airy... Floral. It was perfect. I truly the best description, sexiest description of how a man smells that I think we've read for this show. I think that's right. I think maybe a close second would be Prince of Midnight when he smells like horse and pine trees and leather. And like petrichor. <laughs> Anything that doesn't smell like bergamot and man or like cedar and man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things, okay, so, like, a lich is, like, kind of a deep cut nerd-wise. Sure. At least as it exists in these novels with its phylactery. Mm-hmm. Created for Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing about Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering. Dungeons and Dragons has a motion picture starring Chris Pine, as you pointed out, as well as that gentleman from Bridgerton. Yep. Magic the Gathering does not have that movie. (laughs) Will not have that movie. And as much as I think about, like, the mainstreaming of nerd culture, it's interesting Mm -hmm. to see what gets brought to the surface. I also think it's interesting that what gets brought to the surface, but also, like, in wider nerd culture, I also think, like, the Kindle Unlimited might be a good scry here, Mm. where it's, like, what... What do the algorithms pull, but also then, like, what does that do? So, like... The Renaissance Fair, just outside of Chicago, one of the best ones voted by, like, people every year, has theme days. And so there's, like, Loki Renaissance Fair Day, and then there's, like, Pirate Renaissance Fair Day, and then there's, like... And so it's even within, like, a very specific nerd culture, people who like to dress up or be around people who dress up for nerd stuff... You can even, like, file that down into further nerd by, like, 
Marvel or <laughs> like pirates. And I think the fact that nerd culture has like really erupted in in its own cool way, right? Like every like it's this acknowledgement that like a deep and encyclopedic knowledge of a thing is cool. Um, even if that thing is Dungeons and Dragons or Magic the Gathering to a lesser extent. Um, See, that's the thing. I don't think anyone thinks Magic the Gathering nerds are cool. I don't think anyone thinks Warhammer is cool. I think people make fun of World of Warcraft still in earnest. But Dungeons Who are those and- people, though? You know what I mean? Like, who's making fun of World of Warcraft at this point? Cultural bastions <laughs> yeah but that's what i mean i think it's also like who is doing the making fun of has changed and it's not like it's not as mainstream to make fun of nerds anymore and it's I like think not making fun of nerds broadly but i think you can still mock people specifically and i think it's interesting like what because like i would say Dungeons and Dragons. Maybe it's because of Stranger Things mm-hmm. that it's That's had a huge this like, part of it. cool thing. But like, I think, I mean, true crime used to be a very nerdy group. It was just like women with gray hair being nerdy about it for the most part. And then like boys you should never go on a date with. It's not that anymore. No, now it's like tote bags. It's everybody. Yeah. yeah. And I think likewise, like everybody wants to get like, a Dungeons and Dragons group together, you know, people want to like enjoy this fantasy. Maybe it's because Dungeons and Dragons Renaissance fairs, like, I don't know how this applies to true crime, but I think true crime maybe became mainstream because that's where the girls were. (laughs) But like Dungeons and Dragons allows you to have like creativity and like, you can kind of make it what you want, assuming you have like the right, alignment of values at your table Mm -hmm. but like magic the gathering has very strict rules it's a card game and Mm -hmm. like warhammer is likewise very stringent likewise i would say world of warcraft is like more on the dungeons and dragons side of the spectrum Mm -hmm. but it's still like an isolated activity but like esports yeah but people like nerd the shit out about esports like like everything has like this. yeah but it's not cool esports are only cool are not mainstream cool esports are still kind of like a joke are they yeah people are like oh my god the only team in our high school to qualify for state was the esports team like how embarrassing hmm i don't know i think like part of the shift might be the fact that people nerd out in the verbiage about non-nerd things but they're still doing the nerd action like fantasy football really unlocked this for a lot of people i think where it's like well you're just doing the classification that people get into about like dungeons and dragons like you're getting encyclopedic about this which is in and of itself nerdy like you know way too much about the Pittsburgh Steelers backbench like you know it was it was never a source of ridicule to know a lot about football and fantasy football is just an out a social outlet for people who already anyways had encyclopedic knowledge about a sport 
But, like, I also got into fantasy football and did not have an encyclopedic knowledge. I had what I would call, like, an inherited whatever about football when I still was into it. But, like, I think people who got into fantasy football suddenly and, like, got into it hardcore had a moment of, like, revelation where they're like, oh, wait, the thing that I'm doing is the thing that other people do not about sports, but about other stuff. You really think that they were like, hey, people who play Dungeons and Dragons are just like me. <laughs> or, or like, I think it probably wasn't like, hey, they're just like me. I think it was like, oh, no, I'm just like them. I think that was probably more of the thing. And like, that's where the zeitgeist turn is. In my viewing. Is its, approx- is its proximity to fantasy football. The nerd culture that gets, like, once we get to a level with fantasy football where we're painting tiny figurines of the teams, that's when Warhammer's moment will come. Also, people have been painting figurines about stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's clearly not, like, a a duration thing. Maybe it's a social thing. Like, maybe however social. But, like, Magic the Gathering, you have to, like. It's a cooperative Card you game. need to have someone who wants to play with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. I also just think like board games in general, like Catan is a super fucking nerdy game, but people get super into it who like you wouldn't immediately immediately be like, you know a lot about sheep and wheat, right? You know, I think like there's just like the internet probably and like the media has just done enough to throw spotlights onto the weird corners that used to be siloed that they would that weren't able to speak to each other before reddit so do you think it was random that like dungeons and dragons became the thing that it is now no i think that's a direct link to stranger things and probably like buffy the vampire slayer and stuff like that i think i think Genre fantasy shows have been building this momentum and then Stranger Things came along and just like steroided it, marked McGuire it out of the park to use a sport reference. Yeah, I think but also like Star Wars for a lot of our lifetime was for dorks. Thank you. Now is very I mean, like, it was a huge hit when it first came out, but, like, yep. in our generation, when it was, like, re- re-released in theaters, and then it wasn't until there was some new energy behind it as, like, episode... But then episode one was, like, almost immediately... Bleh, yeah. Vomited on as soon as it came out. It was. People who liked it were dorks, but people who got really mad at it were likewise dorks, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of discussion about the mainstreaming of nerd culture, but until I see, like, I don't, I don't think it's actually that mainstream. I think it's like several, like, very lucky, very privileged pockets are now become, or maybe you don't think it's a privilege to have your special interest blow up, but. I was pretty upset when the Willow TV show was bad, so I don't think, like, it blowing up and getting more money is necessarily good for the thing that you're into. Yeah. I, I mean like just like in general being like something you can talk about around the water cooler. Mm. And I don't think that's true for Willow in the same way it's true for like Andor. Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. And Mandalorian and stuff like that, you know? And like, so what is the, like what is the secret? <sighs> Listen, is it JJ Abrams? No, it's not. I think this Dungeons and Dragons movie is going to fucking flop. 
I hope not. I'm getting a babysitter so I can go see it. But I'm also actively in like two campaigns. So like, I feel like I have to go. Well, Isabel, I would say you're you're a true nerd. You're not quite Henry Cavill, but you're... Thank you. Thank God. Few people are. Did you see his recent interview where he popped off about his Warhammer? No, I didn't. I don't watch. Warhammer 4K. I don't watch any of his like normal nerd stuff. I'm like, people tell me that that happens. And I'm like, I can exclusively watch this human in Witcher and like the films that they do because I'm so worried about the stuff that they're doing when they're not in character. You've had to cut them off. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I, I've, I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, I'm named for a fantasy romance from the 80s. Like, I'm not escaping. Like, there's, there, like, I'm caught in this orbit forever. Like, I just, I am a true nerd. And so it's also hard for me to comment about where it came from because you're like, is it J.J. Abrams? And I'm like, well, before J.J. Abrams, there was L.O.T.R. And that was a huge mega hit. Like, and so, like, you know, I'm just. Maybe, well, I mean, Peter Jackson was pretty cool. He was doing, like, genre stuff. Like, like the he Frighteners? Was very- yeah, he was very, like, edgy and, like, punk rock. And everyone was like, he's going to do Lord of the Rings. And he and he sure did. He, he did sure did. He did a super job. But he, he wasn't, like, a particularly, job. like, he wasn't, um, like, a fantasy guy, you know? No, I would put Frighteners directly in, like, line with... Buffy and that kind of stuff because it was like he did, I remember he did uh, a lot of horror he did Frighteners he did uh, the really great zombie movie where they like go through a house full of zombies with a weed whacker he did <laughs> uh, a more like somber true crime movie like he you know yeah he was doing stuff but he was doing weird, wacky stuff. He Like, I would say he was, like, very much in line with, like, the punk rock thing. But that's the thing. Like, you can be, like, a horror nerd and still be, like, edgy. Like, there's something decidedly unedgy about being interested in a medieval-adjacent fantasy world. I don't think that's true. I think there's lots of ways to be edgy <laughs> about that. Give me an example of an edgy work of fantasy. Well, it's really hard on the spot. <laughs> Ooh, uh, Deerskin by um, either Robin McKinley or Jane Yolen. That's a deep cut. That is a super deep cut. And it is incredibly edgy. Like, I'm not saying that fantasy cannot be. I'm just saying, like, in general, it's not understood that way. I think part of the reason why it's not understood that way, right, is, like, the earnestness question. Like, fantasy is just really earnest, and it's hard to be edgy if you're too earnest. Like, the Samwise Gamgee of the problem. Um, So I'm trying to think about... You know, it's like sci-fi is cool, because, like, Ursula K. Le Guin, you know? Dune is edgier than... Uh... Robin Hood. Well, Robin Hood's a weird example. Well, that's what I'm trying to think. I'm thinking thinking about like an epic. I would be like Lord of the Rings. Like Dune is edgier than Lord of the Rings. Sure. Like that's a more easy comparison. But it's like the question of like, it feels like horror and sci-fi are on this like edgier end of culture. And then like fantasy and romance has this like 
does not have that edge, does not have that same like easy access to, or like is not under, is understood as like soft and squishy. Yeah, I think it's understood that I, way. Or at least like zeitgeist, not zeitgeisty, but um, status quo. I don't know that I'd agree with that, but I don't have anything off the top of my head that like isn't moving in that direction. I'm going to keep thinking on this because, like, I... Like, what is a large... Like, if there's a cultural touchstone of a genre, of the genre of fantasy... It's Lord of the Rings. That is not status quo. That is edgy. It's got to be A Court of Thorn and Roses by Sarah <laughs> That shit is edgy. It might be fairy porn. It might be, like, Cruel Prince and all those... All those books. What if that's it? Like, what if that, what if that is the the savior for not only romance but fantasy? What if we're hand in hand, Thelma and Louise, and the car is Sarah J. Moss. <laughs> the car is Sarah J. Moss and her wood black print covers. <laughs> yeah, importantly, crucially. Yeah, crucially, because that wasn't getting the same play before. Hmm. I'll have to keep thinking on that. Because, like, we kind of touched on, like, like fantasy tends to be retailed automatically as YA. Yeah. Even when it's as horny as A Court of Thorn and Roses. They're like, yeah. give it to the children. <laughs> yeah, they, they do act that way. They don't make that same assumption about science fiction anymore. No, they do not. And they never made that assumption about horror. <laughs> no. Because of the blood and the guts. Because of the blood and the guts. <laughs> Even though, like, a lot of horror is totally free of that. Mm-hmm. Just creaky floors. Mm-hmm. And they're right behind you. <gasps> yeah. What do you keep thinking on this? Listen, I gotta say, I say this with deep affection mm-hmm. and, a, and earnesty. I think you might be too deep inside it to see it. I think you might not be the best person to determine <laughs> whether or not fantasy is um, punk rock. Yeah. Eh. The most punk rock thing about fantasy is the performance of um, Smeagol. I mean, Andy Serkis. Like. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so I can't wait for the angry rebuttals from my husband and my brother. Good. I would like to hear some um, bros explain how fantasy is punk rock. I don't mean that. I would like <laughs> listeners in general to explain how it is because like. See if you can convince me. Yeah. Because I, I got to say right now, it's, it's pretty Opie and Andy. No. <laughs> I, I mean, I would take you more seriously if you could give me one example. Well, unfortunately, the example that just sprang to my mind was the Joanna Lindsay uh, medieval romance where... That does not count. That's a historical romance. You know that she was going for accuracy. How dare I know you. she was because she loved it so much. How dare She's you. Such a goose. I'm just going to have to go through my fantasy trove here. Yeah. Well, anything else? No, this was great. This is the closest closest thing to an edgy fantasy you're going to find besides 
this side of Sarah J. Moss. I don't think that's true. That's my official review. It's a woe. If it became a cultural touchstone, it would resolve this discussion. It's very good. I can't wait to read the rest of it. Yeah, everyone go out and buy it. Talk about it. Can't wait. Is it a woe for you? Obviously. I loved it. It was so good. Well, certified woe, but not really edgy. Oh, my God. Like, that wasn't even, like, okay. Like, no, this is not a particularly edgy book, but, like, that's also not its job. It's it's pretty dang edgy for a fantasy. I don't think that it was, is my feeling. Because I have read edgier fantasies. I just can't think of them right now. (laughs) I didn't know that this was the assignment. I didn't come correct. (laughs) And I have given you some, and you're like, that's too much of a deep cut. And I'm like, Janet Yolen isn't a deep cut. I went, well, I'm just saying, like, the reason, like, it's so hard for fantasy to become mainstream is because it's not punk rock enough to be understood as cool. But Stranger Things added this, like, punk rock fun vintage outfits thing to Dungeons and Dragons. And I don't know if fantasy will ever be cool without cool clothes. It's hard to make a floor-length dress cool. But people I mean, they're try. very cool now. They're very cool now. Actually, fantasy cottagecore, very popular. Cottagecore. But no one thinks it's edgy. People think there's a cottagecore to trad wife pipeline. Yeah, because they're kind of... There kind of is, you know? Going to keep uh, sus in my bookshelf because I know I've got some. Very, there's just something very status quo. Which is also like, I just want to live in a cottage and wear a corset to, <laughs> I just want to live in a cottage. I just want to breed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> With that. <laughs> loosen, your, loosen your stays, for God's sake. But never your principles. <laughs> Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.